Welcome to another episode of Disciplology, a podcast where we talk about all things discipleship. Guys, today I have such a special treat. Uh, Kristen McClellan is here with us to talk and explain so many things about the Bible to us today. Uh, I think it's important to note that uh, scripture was written thousands of years ago, right? But yet it still is able to impact our daily lives today, right? And so in that, the way that Jesus treated women in the Bible is almost countercultural to how uh, it was supposed to be in the day. And so this is what we're going to talk about in, in all within the, the idea of discipleship. So discipling, how do we disciple women? How did Jesus interact with women? Christy, where do we even begin in this? Well, first of all, thanks for having me today. Sure. I've been really looking forward to having this conversation with you all. You know, there's so many things about Jesus that make him so unique in his first century Jewish world 2,000 years ago. And one of those is his posture toward in his ministry to, with, and among women. And one of the first things that I always like to say is Jesus is bringing a restoration to something that's been broken. Um, to know anything about Judaism, women have a very high position and status in Judaism. Hmm. Um, the Friday night Shabbat candles, there's only one member of the family who's allowed to light the Shabbat candles. And in a world of patriarchy, we expect it to be the father, the pater, but it's actually the mother. She's the only member of the family that's allowed to light the Shabbat candles. And I raise that because that means that Jesus, James, and his siblings grew up in a world with their mother, Mary, lighting the Shabbat candles for them mm. on Friday nights. And so I always say that Jesus didn't come to turn things upside down. Jesus came to turn things right side up. Mm. And one of the fundamental ways we see him doing this is with ministry with and among women. And to know, you know, when we th talk about discipleship, the rabbi Talmud, Talmud's the Hebrew word for disciple. The rabbi Talmud relationship, it was so close. It was so intimate. It was so paramount. It was so important. It's your highest affiliation in their world. Um, we affiliate with our sports teams or what church we go to or our community. But 2000 years ago, everybody's asking the same question. Who is your rabbi? Mm -hmm. Who is it that you have been baptized into his name, mm -hmm. that you've taken on his yoke? And something that's so beautiful when I think about Jesus and discipleship and then Jesus' discipleship and women, one of the things that makes Jesus so unique in that world is in that day, you chose your rabbi. You would listen to different rabbis, and when you found one that you felt like he knows the way of the Lord, he can instruct my family in the things of God, you would go and ask that rabbi if you could be one of his Talmudim, mm -hmm. and they would say yes or no. And Jesus is counter, just revolutionary mm -hmm. in the fact that he came on the scene and he started choosing his disciples. Mm -hmm. He started doing the choosing. And if you can imagine, we all love to be chosen, right? To feel like we have a place at the table. And so when we see these narratives throughout the Gospels of Jesus calling Peter and Andrew and the others to understand that Mary also, Luke chapter 10, sat at his feet, mm -hmm. that Jesus had female Talmudim. We know it, and there's no reason for us to think that Mary was the only one. 
And so we have Jesus 2,000 years ago inviting women to the discipleship table, making sure they have a place, making sure they have room, making sure they're seen, making sure they know that they're chosen and that they're wanted. And there's something about that that I really believe fueled the early church. Because the other thing that's just so beautiful about discipleship in their world, if I could have a time machine, I would so love to go back and spend a year living in that world. It's that Rabbi Talmud relationship. You don't just want to know what your rabbi knows. You want to be like him. You want to embody him. You want to sound like him. You want to smell like him. You want to look like him. You want to act like him. And so for Jesus to show up, and start choosing regular, everyday people to come be his disciples. He's not saying, I think you can learn what I know. He's mm. saying, oh, I think you can be just like me. Mm. And I think they bit down on that. And so when we read into the book of Acts and what are they doing? They're showing up and being like Jesus resurrection power at work in their lives. And so to know who Jesus is and what he's like when it comes to discipleship, there is always another seat at his table. And he wants the entire world to know that they are welcome to come to it. All right, wrap it up. Jeez, that's so good. Um, and we've talked a lot about uh, discipleship on this podcast, obviously, is intentionality and availability. Mm -hmm. So those two things, uh, Jesus even being counterculture to that going, I'm going to go seek you out instead of you coming to me. Um, talk to us a little bit about uh, the relationship that he had with women in scriptures to where, um, you know, there he was around prostitutes a lot, right? And so there, uh, there were things that were against what the culture said. And I, and I also think that, uh, you know, Western culture versus Eastern culture, there's a big difference on how we interpret things. So I know there's a lot of questions in that. Uh, talk to us first about uh, the people that he surrounded himself with. So back to Jesus is restoring something that had been lost. Um, the place of woman that Jesus incarnates into, that he's birthed into 2000 years ago, she had lost that place of honor. And she had been placed in a place of shame. And so when we read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all of these interactions and biblical stories of Jesus with women, he's bringing two things into their lives. He's bringing justice and he's bringing righteousness. It's Mishpat and Zedekah in Hebrew. And biblical justice, it's, it's a lifting up. It's vertical. Biblical justice is defined as when the honorable reaches down to the shameful lifts them out of their shame and restores their honor. And we see Jesus coming onto the scene and being birthed into a time and place where woman is anchored in shame. Mm -hmm. She needs mm -hmm. to be lifted up, not mm -hmm. just a little bit. She needs a lot of justice. And that Zedekah, that word righteousness, it carries such a deep tributary of generosity that Jesus is bringing generous justice to women in all of these biblical stories, really in so many different ways. Something that I love talking about just as a teacher is when you read rabbinic literature, uh, rabbis were not using women in the subject matter of their stories and parables. Women were considered too lowly to communicate the divine. And Jesus comes on the scene and not only does he tell stories and parables with women in it, 
he's adamant about it. In the Gospel of Luke alone, there's 27 pairings. And what I mean by a pairing, there's 27 moments where Jesus gives two parables in a moment, one in the masculine and one in the feminine. And again, if you're a woman in that world, you're not used to sermons really pertaining to you. Mm -hmm. They fit your husband, they fit your father, they fit your sons, but they don't really hit you in your everyday life. And here comes Jesus on the scene. What shall I compare the kingdom of God to? It's like yeast that a woman works through dough. And all of a sudden, Jesus is bringing women into the conversation For Jesus, women can communicate the things of the kingdom. You know, I love the parable of the persistent widow. You know, she faces this evil judge. She has no one. And by the end of the story, she's lifted up, honor restored. She goes forth in shalom. And it's the judge who feels shame because he's misaligning his power. And so even in the way Jesus crafted his story, sometimes when I imagine him, I'm an only child. I'm very imaginative. And I just, I think about him laying on his mat at night, knowing that he's going to speak in some synagogue or on a mountainside the next day and shaping his stories and making sure the feminine is present, making sure that every woman that will be under the sound of his voice hears a kingdom of God story that invites her into it make sure she knows she's welcome. You know, it makes a direct sort of connection to the Samaritan woman at the well. You know, Jesus talks theology Mm -hmm. with her. Rabbis are not discussing theology with women. They're Mm -hmm. really not talking with women, period, in that world. There's a lot in rabbinic literature about (laughs) don't even speak to your wife too much. (laughs) You know, it's not good marital advice, you know but much less a woman who's not your wife. And here's Jesus in the heart of the day with the sun beating down for the whole village to see if they're looking. He's not only talking to the Samaritan woman, he's discussing theology and place of worship with her. Is it Mount Gerizim? Is it Jerusalem? And he seems so comfortable, so at home and at peace around women And I guarantee you, she's never had that kind of a conversation in her life. Mm -hmm. And to see Jesus just so adamant about making sure that women know it is not God's design for you to be anchored in shame. It is God's design for you to know and to walk in honor and to walk forth in shalom. And we see this unleashing in his ministry left and right. What's the prayer that is, thank God I'm not a woman? Oh, yes. Yeah. First century world. Um, it's part of the Siddur, part mm-hmm. of the morning mm-hmm. benedictions, the morning prayers. And Jewish men would pray, thank you, O Lord, that you have not made me a Gentile, a slave or a woman. And so you start to see the mindset. There's nothing worse than being a Gentile, a slave or a woman. And if I can just say this while we're at it, You know, Paul's verse in Galatians 3, 28, when he says, now in Christ, there's what? There is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male or female. That verse, he is directly Mm -hmm. addressing that prayer. Mm -hmm. And that in the kingdom of God, absolutely not. You Mm -hmm. may draw your vertical lines of who gets in and who gets out, but God won't have it. His Mm -hmm. table is too big for that. And there's a seat for everybody. That's a good word.
Man, that is a really good word. I'm Elizabeth Heinemann, and I'm here with Kelly King. Hey, Elizabeth. Hey. And we're interrupting your Disciplology. Disciplology. That's right. That's it. That's it. Um, With an easier name to say, the March podcast is what we co-host, and it's from Lifeway Women. And more than anything, it's just saying, pull up a chair. As Lifeway Women, we have the privilege of being at the table. We get to be behind the scenes of the front lines of ministry, both public ministry and private ministry. That's right. And at Lifeway Women, we work with authors and speakers helping to craft their messages and sometimes that means chatting in green rooms or even around conference rooms. We also work with everyday disciple makers. We work with moms who are exhausted, the single women who are just trying to figure out what God wants them to do, and the ministry leaders who may be frustrated with limitations. That's right. So we hope that Mark Podcast serves as an invitation to all of you women to take a seat at the table. So join us at the Mark Podcast. Yes. Subscribe wherever you're subscribing to Disciplology. That's right. Man, that is a really good word. So in serving women, I think a question that I get a lot is as we read through the Old Testament and a lot, and for many women, it's the first time they've really read through Leviticus, for instance, because I mean, come on, most people and myself included, we skip that one in the in the year long plan. We just skip it. So uh, as they read, they always tend to ask, like, why are there these extra laws for women. And then we look to the New Testament, we see this bleeding woman or even the Samaritan woman who would have in a lot of ways been condemned as well. Talk to us about how to read those uh, both in the Old Testament and then kind of as Jesus interacts and and what we should do with that uh, to apply it to our lives. You know, I, I tell my students at the college all the time that the Bible is one story mm. and it, it's a story. Yeah, The Bible is a story. And it's best read and understood from beginning to end. And so to go back even further than Leviticus, because who wants to talk about Leviticus right. <laughs> for too long? But if you go all the way back to the Garden of Eden and what I call the Edenic way, like yeah. what was God's original purpose and plan for male-female relationship? The Bible is actually very clear. Adam and Eve, Adama and Eve were put in the garden to co-steward, to co-regent, co-ambassador, co-rule is what Genesis talks about. And I remember when I was studying in Israel, I had the chance to ask a rabbi, you know, rabbi, what does it mean when it says it wasn't good for Adam to be alone? And we all would say, because he was lonely, there was no creature of his kind. If you're going to have children, you need a woman. And he looked right at me and he said, because there was an enemy in the garden and it was always going to take male and female together to contend against the enemy. That's good. And I've never forgotten that. This bearded, just sage of Israel, just as a man. And I could tell by the way he was looking at me, he wanted to make sure that that took root. And it has. I am still sitting here talking about it. And so if that's God's design, male, female, together, mutuality, flourishing, shalom, delight, then we carry that into the fallen world after Genesis 3. And so by the time you get to Leviticus, 
and some of these very strange laws, when you understand them against other law codes of that time, whether Egyptian, Assyrian, Babylonian, whatever's going on, you start to see that in the strangest of ways, they're actually restorative and trying to protect women in the world at that time. You know, when people say to me, well, God seems mean in the Old Testament, but Jesus seems nice in the sure. New Testament. I'm like, reread the story. Mm-hmm. Um, his chesed is all throughout the Old Testament, even when it comes to women. And something that's so interesting is in every era of Israel's history, from the Exodus, it's not just Moses and Aaron, it's Moses, mm-hmm. Aaron, and Miriam. Then you come to the period of the judges, and it's not just Barak, it's Barak and Devorah, or Deborah, as we like to call her. These male-female partnerships where they're siblings, um, military leader, judge. It. You go to the book of Esther, it's not just Mordecai, it's Mordecai and Esther. You go to the book of Ruth, it's not just Boaz, it's Boaz, Ruth, Naomi. The Bible is full of these beautiful stories of male and female together living out the way of the Lord in a watching world and inviting them to be a part of it. So it makes sense to us when Jesus shows up on the scene, he's really just continuing in manifold fashion what his father had been doing from the very beginning in the Garden of Eden. And so, you know, it's kind of beautiful to think about that there's a holy invasion taking place. The kingdom of light is taking over the kingdom of darkness. Mm -hmm. And both men and women are a part of that. And it was that way from the beginning. It's the original Edenic design. Love that. So how can the church today do a better job of raising up women, discipling women? I mean, I'm raising two girls and... You know, a lot of times they think there's not a place for them when it comes to the church. So how can we do a better job? You know, man, two daughters, that's beautiful. Um, The first few things that come to my mind, and I'll just share a little bit from my own story to answer your question. Um, I accepted Jesus when I was nine years old. And one of the earliest sort of manifestations or fruits of the spirit in my life was a curiosity for the Bible. But at that time, I lived in a world where women could not teach the Bible, not in any shape, form, or fashion. I was 19 years old before I ever saw a woman teach the Bible. I was a sophomore in college. Mm -hmm. And I would just say, coming out of that story, obviously now life's been long. I'm 46 years old. I teach Bible at a college and take teams to Israel on biblical study trips. And I do teach at churches and things like that. But it's been a long journey um, over many, many years. And I think the first thing I would just say is for the church to really approach the Bible as something that both men and women are supposed to handle, are supposed to learn, are supposed to teach, and are supposed to live. Mm -hmm. And the more we can normalize that, Um, when I teach at churches now, something that always makes me cry because I never had it was when fathers and mothers bring their little daughters up to meet me afterwards and they're five, six, seven, 11, whatever. And it makes me cry because they are bearing witness to something at such a young age. 
um, that the scriptures are for all believers. The scriptures are for the world, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, but we become the harbingers and the holders and the, and the teachers of it. And, you know, women are theologians. Um, you know, in Judaism, it's the mothers who educate the children. And so the more I think that we can normalize that and really invite women fully into just the scriptural realm, um, that we belong there, um, that we are at our best in meaningful relationships alongside of the men in our lives and vice versa. Um, I think it's a really beautiful thing. I think I wish the church could lead more in that Edenic way of male and female together contending against the enemy. So I would say normalizing it, normalizing scripture in the hands of females. That's good. Yeah. I love how you just slip Hebrew into normal conversation. Uh, It's one of my favorite things about you, actually. Uh, Without getting a degree in Hebrew, what are some ways, uh, your own Bible study resource, but what are some other ways that uh, we could learn how Jesus actually communicated with the people of his time? Absolutely. I tell people all the time, we tend to read Western authors because we live in a Western world, but the more you can enter Mm -hmm. into the Jewish world Mm -hmm. to understand their culture, how they define terms. You know, when Jesus says in Matthew 11, take my yoke upon you, we're envisioning two oxen in a field with a yoke on them. And then he says something, you know, take my yoke upon you and I'll give you rest. And we're thinking that's not a restful image. But then you start to understand that a yoke in Jesus's world is a rabbi's teachings. I mean, to this day, a yoke is a rabbi's teachings. If you're in Israel and you're studying with a rabbi, you don't ask him, what is your theology on Mm -hmm. giving? You say, what is your yoke on giving? Mm -hmm. And they'll start teaching. So there are so many books and resources out there that will help you get to know the biblical world, not just commentaries on the Bible, but right. getting getting to spend some time in Jesus's everyday life and rhythms. What was his morning like? What was his afternoon like? What kind of foods did he eat? How did he get from place to place? What did a rabbi look like? What did a rabbi not look like? All of these things, when we learn it and then we read the Bible, things that have never really made sense to us or that we've never even noticed, all of a sudden, not only are we noticing it, but we yeah. know exactly all of a sudden what is going on there. I think you recommended me months ago, Kenneth Bailey's book, um, through, uh, Jesus, Jesus through, through the, Middle Eastern yep. eyes. Uh, I just said my nose on the mic. Um, it, it was such a good resource. And I think it's kind of the benchmark standard of where everybody could start. Um, it, it was super approachable and easy to understand. And yet, made things come alive. It, it brought out some of the symbiology of what Jesus would do and why he would do things. And, and it was just, it's so good. It made scripture, uh, it made me read scripture differently. And it was so good. Uh, Christy, thank you. It's really fun to, to get to sit with you and, and get to learn a little bit more. Um, thank you so much for listening and for watching uh, Discipleology, a podcast about discipleship. Today, we got to, to learn a little bit more and go a little bit deeper. Chris, Mary, thank you so much. We will see you guys next week.